The Senate Budget Committee is working on its budget resolution for fiscal 2020 this week. As always, the budget resolution is not legally binding, but it is an important procedural step in the budget process, more in some years than in others. Among other things, if it's passed by the full Senate, it sets top-line spending targets for the appropriations committees for the year. David Hawkins is editor-in-chief at The Firewall, and he joins us now to talk about the early step in the 2020 budgeting process. And so, David, the Senate Republican budget, uh, it looks like something our listeners will care about is is at least a vehicle, a potential vehicle, a proposed vehicle for cuts to federal retirement. But but it seems like it might be a much less relevant process this year with uh, divided party control on Capitol Hill. Why, why, why do a budget resolution in a year like this? Well, uh, a couple of reasons. One is uh, it's sort of an obligation of the party in charge to do one. Uh, and to, especially when the party in charge of the Senate is the same party as that of the president, it allows uh, it allows Senate Republicans to, um, you know, sort of make a political point, if not a policy point. Um, I think it's it is fair to predict uh, that in with, given this return of divided government, the if the Democratic House does a budget at all. Uh, there's no way, essentially no no way that the House Democratic budget and the Senate Republican budget proposals will be reconciled. So I think it's highly unusual um, that there will be a budget resolution this year. Um, without getting too wonky or in the weeds, um, you know, budget resolution does not have the force of law. It is it is a statement. It is a statement of principle on the part of Congress about what they think the priority should be, but it doesn't have teeth in too many different areas, especially in a year when they're not going to try and do a big uh, tax bill or a big change in so-called entitlements like Medicare and Medicare. When they try and do those things, then the budget resolution is what gets used as a procedural matter to kind of kick off the, the whole process that some that people know as reconciliation, which does away with filibusters and allows big tax and entitlement bills to go through. None of that really applies this year. And so in a year when there is no big... Uh, sort of big budget bill to happen other than the appropriations bills, then the only point of an of a budget resolution is it generally is the thing that Congress uses to set the top lines on spending. Even without a budget resolution, however, uh, Congress can, the House and the Senate could come together on a top line for spending. Uh, and I think they may well in the end do that. One of the stories, I think I, we, you and I have discussed this before, uh, is that you know, one of the sort of unheralded stories of the first few years of the Trump administration um, is that for all the president's uh, vaunted talk about cutting spending, uh, more discretionary spending has happened uh, than in the past. And the way the way the president seems to be getting through much of the, the, the budget wars other than the wall has been by spending more. And if I've got the process right, this this reconciliation process you alluded to where the, the Senate can kind of do magic tricks by en enacting policy with only 51 votes, that only works if both the House and the Senate pass identical budget resolutions, right, which ain't going to happen. That That is right, and that's not going to happen, and that doesn't really need to happen this year because no, uh, there there is no serious talk this year about doing tax legislation or doing legislation to change the healthcare system. I mean, that, that's a dead letter this year, the whole repeal and replace, that's, that's, that, that's not being discussed anymore. Uh, so there's gonna be no tax bill, no healthcare bill, no bill to change Medicare or Medicaid or social security or farm subsidies or really any of the entitlement programs. So there is no need for reconciliation and therefore the, the only 
you know, other than as a political matter, the only sort of toothy consequence of a budget resolution is to decide how much the appropriations committees are going to spend precisely of what's now amounting to about $1.3 trillion um, in, in what they call discretionary spending, the money that Congress actually gets to have a say-so in every year. And the resolution Chairman Enzi rolled out on Friday gets to roughly the same place the administration's budget does, in, in, in rough philosophical terms anyway, up to a $750 billion spending level for defense, and then meanwhile, no real increases, actual decreases for um, non-defense domestic uh, discretionary spending. But the way they do it, it looks like to me, uh, on, in the Senate GOP side, is to, instead of stuffing a bunch of money into overseas contingency operations like the president's budget would, they actually leave room open for the possibility of raising the Budget Control Act caps on defense, at least. Like I said, they both get to the same place, but are there different ways to think about those two approaches politically in the Senate? Uh, there, there are. I think. I think what is what this is is going to be an opportunity. Um, and I don't. I don't mean to sound cynical here, but what Mr. Enzi is doing, Senator Enzi is doing, is is putting out a, a document. Um, that his fellow Republicans are going to be able to vote for, and say they and say they voted for, and say that they, um, are, you know, are for a more more robust defense spending and for cuts in domestic discretionary, uh, and for altering the. They're going to say they're for all that, um, but really, between now and September, or more likely October or November or December, when the budget, when the actual appropriations decisions gets made, most of those decisions. Um, will be long forgotten, and they will be just trying to grind out against a Democratic House what's probably going to be modest increases, only modest increases for almost everything, maybe a little bit more for defense and for domestic discretionary, uh, which is the way they're going to be able to grease uh, the realities of divided government and get something done without a shutdown uh, before the end of before the end of the year. All right. Now, our last couple of minutes here, I want to pivot to a, a slightly different issue, actually a very different issue, something you wrote about for the firewall, which is that uh, a new study coming out showing that uh, voter turnout is linked much more to ease of voting than it is to excitement or competitiveness about any particular race, right? Yeah, that's right. I thought it was an interesting an in- interesting result, which uh, this is, um, it's an organization, two organizations, one's called Nonprofit Vote and the other one's called the U.S. Elections Project. They do this every two years. They essentially go through uh, all 50 states and figure out what the turnout was. And they found that, yes, um, there's more turnout uh, than at any other midterm election in the last 104 years. 50.3% of eligible voters voted. But that 50.3% uh, was not hardly at all uniform across the states. There were uh, some states where turnout was in the 60s and some turnout where turnout was in the 40s. And that really didn't have to do, um, as you say, with hot races. For example, Texas, where there was the marquee Senate race of the year, Beto O'Rourke trying to take down Ted Cruz, uh, huge amount of attention, uh, huge surges in voter interest, it seemed. And yes, voter turnout was up in Texas, but it was still uh, the 41st. It was 41st on the list of turnouts. In other words, ninth from the bottom in terms of turnout, only like 46% of Texans voted. Why is that? These, the authors of the study concluded that that was because uh, voting in Texas is still not an easy thing to do. Registration, for example, in Texas ends four weeks before Election Day. What the authors of the study found was, a, was that in the states where there's same-day registration, 
most of the states with same day registration were in the top 10 or, or put another way of the states in the with the 10 highest amounts of turnout uh, seven or so had same day registration. Another thing that's important to getting high turnout uh, were mail in vote states. There are three uh, th there are four states, Colorado, Oregon, Washington and now Utah where you essentially get sent a ballot in the mail and you vote by mail. Uh, turnout was really high in those states. Uh, and conversely, the states, the states where it was low, where the, uh, where the turnout was low, were the states where you have to, where early voting is limited and where registration happens way, way before the election. All right, David Hawkins, editor-in-chief at The Firewall. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.